primary care knowledge boost, fibromyalgia part two. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We thought it would be nice to take a little break from our COVID episodes and give you all the second part of fibromyalgia for a little bit of a refreshing change. Yeah, and we'll be back after this episode with some more topics relevant to the current COVID climate. So we're lining ones up about social prescribing and community services, amongst other things. We really loved speaking to um, Prof Anthony Jones and Will Gregory about fibromyalgia back before COVID happened. And they're really knowledgeable and passionate about the subject. Um, So definitely check out part one if you haven't already, as it's about diagnosis and investigation. Yeah, this episode is focused more about management. Um, It's a longer episode than our recent ones that we put out. But since recording the episode and listening back to it, I've personally used so much of the information. It's been really, really helpful to my practice and my way of thinking about managing chronic pain. Yeah, definitely. Now, it was recorded before COVID, so some of the bits have changed a little bit. And we did get in touch with Anthony and Will and they've clued us in to what the services now look like um, with COVID happening. So we'll summarise those for you, but we figured that the episode was still so rich with great nuggets of information. It would have been such a shame not to release it. Um, But just be aware that some of the things in terms of services have changed slightly at the minute. Yeah, and hopefully it will go back to back to normal at at some point. So as we're recording this uh, intro, which is on the 29th of May, the services that are still ongoing but that switched to remote have been all the physio to community and secondary services for physio, targeted CBT, outpatient clinic referrals and then the other services at the time of recording now that have been suspended but check it out for when they might start back up and what other things might be going on. The groups that we talk about so Smart Art and fibromyalgia patient education sessions are currently on hold the theatre production pain the brain and a little bit of magic that's on hold at the moment but we'll link to all the different places that you can find out when they're going to be coming back up again the trials that i've mentioned as well are currently on hold yeah exactly and um, but we hope you enjoy the episode can you talk us through management strategies for fibromyalgia that we could be doing in primary care So I guess I should talk about exercise first as a physiotherapist um, (laughs) by training. Um, So we do know that people with fibromyalgia, as Anthony said, respond differently to pain and they respond differently to the discomfort they'll get on exercising. And the natural pattern is that they will therefore do a bit less over the time period before they come to diagnosis or treatment. However, there is a natural tendency to think oh well I'll start exercising and uh, we're recording this in January and perhaps a few people have done this gone right New Year's resolution (laughs) I'm going to start exercising again and you go out and you still exercise the way you used to five years ago or 10 years ago and that's human nature that will do that you overdo it you feel rotten for a week and that's it the New Year's resolution's out the window And, and, and the same for our patients in that there is a real risk that exercise have been problematic to them previously because they've got that tendency to overdo it. So it has to be very gradual and graded exercise and usually supervised by um, a physiotherapist, but it could be, and certainly we've been doing lots of training with gym instructors and, you know, there there should be more resources in the community um, of people who can understand graded exercise and work with people with chronic pain, whether it be fibromyalgia or something else, to gradually build things up. and for the exercise to become a passion, become a habit. You know, you can devise the best exercise program in the world, but if it doesn't become a routine, it's useless. So it's finding something that they can do regularly. I was just thinking of the use of the words passion and that could inspire people. 
I'm sure it happens all the time in, in, in primary care that you're looking at motivational interviewing and how do you change people's lifestyle choices and it's exactly the same with this um, this diagnosis. Yeah. Um, in terms of exercise in from primary care, do we need to be referring into specialist physiotherapists if we want it supervised or could we refer to kind of our normal community physiotherapists? I would hope your normal community physiotherapists. I think if you do start doing that, they will then let you know if they don't feel they have the skill set to manage these kind of patients. But yeah. if it's seen as a specialist skill that only happens at a specialist hospital, you're probably disadvantaging some patients who won't come to the hospital or de-skilling your, your community-based physiotherapists who, who deal with pain all the time. Yeah. So um, sometimes for them, it's dispelling the myth of fibromyalgia being more challenging. Uh, yeah, the patients are harder to, to, to work with exercise-wise, but it is still possible and I think there's sufficient skills in the community physio workforce to, to do that Brilliant. with with good guidance you know good guidelines are out there yeah in terms of other management as well alongside exercise what would you say well I think the two things which have the the best ratio of benefit to harms are exercise and talking therapies or cognitive behavioral therapy and access to cognitive therapy is quite variable across the country mm -hmm. as i'm sure everyone's aware my view is that all primary care health workers should have good access to that and that is the case in some places uh, certainly is in in salford so the other problem might be that the people running cbt in primary care um, won't be used to managing patients with fibromyalgia. Yeah. Um, or there'll be there may be some aspects of their psychological distress that they feel is not appropriate for them to manage if they've got post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. So it's not always straightforward, but it's all really about coordination and having services that are coordinated that don't have a a door that shuts in anyone's face mm -hmm. but um, a process where people can be referred on as appropriate really. I guess it's worth maybe uh, yeah for any listeners to double check with their community like their IAP team their CBT team to see if they're comfortable with receiving yes. fibromyalgia patients because then you know when you're in the consultation yes, it's safe for you to refer them yes. on. So then there's a question when to initiate these things. Yeah. And I think that's probably something we don't know enough about and we also don't give enough thought to. Because uh, obviously if you're, if you're very seriously depressed, you're probably not going to be engaging with any kind of vigorous exercise regime. You might do, but you're less likely to. Mm -hmm. And so really the, the CBT probably needs to come in relatively urgently. And I realise urgent is not something that often happens in relation to talking therapies uh, so i think that is a problem because a lot of patients are waiting i think in primary care across the country as far as i can see for up to a year for appropriate cbt and i think that's really something that needs to be addressed so going to drug therapies I think this is very much horses for courses. So there aren't many drugs that have been shown to work. And we're really talking about non or less selective antidepressants and anti-epileptics uh, such as uh, pregabalin or gabapentin. Yeah. They all have quite significant side effects. 
and they don't suit all, everyone. And the efficacy is quite small, really. You're, you're getting quite modest benefits. So I think it's important to have a really open discussion with patients so they understand what they're getting into. Having said that, you know, there are some patients who do absolutely brilliantly on some of the drugs that are available. So it, that should definitely be borne in mind. My own preference is if the patients aren't too severe, is to favour the non-drug therapies first. But I'm aware of the fact that some of my colleagues may be the converse of that. The other thing I would say is this is where there's there's not very much evidence, unfortunately. But a lot of patients with fibromyalgia struggle with kind of meaning in their lives. You know, they've had really tough times and uh, that there might be, you know, a lack of passionate pursuits. And um, I think there are some organizations which can really help with this. So in Salford, we have an organization called Start Art, which is charity. And they have to be referred by their GP. And uh, it's absolutely brilliant. They just go along, they can start singing in a choir, or they can do carpentry, or they can do painting or whatever. And for some patients, this is, I would say, almost life-saving. It really has given them a huge kind of step up, you know, and I've had patients who've gone on to go to art college and, you know, come back five years later, sort of unrecognisable. So these things, we, we forget about them, but they're quite important. You know, joining a choir, music therapy, all those things are... There's not a lot of evidence, but you kind of think, well, we don't need the evidence, really. Uh, these fill people's lives with a bit more joy. Yeah. How can that be bad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess the community, I don't know if you have those in Salford, the community link workers, because they yeah. can be quite useful of knowing what's available locally that people can join. So it might be another use of them. Yeah. And often just asking the patient, what are the things you used to be passionate about when you were a child? And they'll they'll look at you and then suddenly you'll see a little spark. Oh, well, actually, I really enjoyed fishing or something. Well, get back to that. Getting back to something that gives them some joy, you know, is quite important, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do see more females than males, generally. And there is a few times where I'll have the conversation where this, you know, this female patient has become a mother and is, you know, busy looking after the children and whatever else is involved and they forget those passions. And actually, sometimes the conversation is, OK, so what are you doing for yourself? You know, where do you fit your own needs into this mm -hmm. um, busy week of yours? And it's been able to kind of let them justify, actually, I need to do this and pursue this because it's for my health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we see quite a lot of mothers who have children of ill health who develop fibromyalgia perhaps because they're on the go all the time looking after their children and again it's that ability to focus on themselves. Very interesting and what about the role of things like support groups um, for fibromyalgia are they quite useful? That's a really good question and I I think these can be really crucial. We're very lucky in Salford we have two really good fibromyalgia support groups and I think they give patients such a a lifeline yeah and they they also give the people who run them i think a fantastic role 
Uh, I mean, it is a bit like a full-time job, I think, running one of these support groups. And sometimes they struggle for funds. But if you've got a good one near you, definitely uh, encourage your patients to engage. Yeah. And there's a if if you go on the Fibromyalgia Association UK website, they've got a link there for where's my local fibromyalgia group. Oh, great. Certainly for us in Salford, there didn't used to be a group. And I was running these education sessions. And at the end of it, I'd say, oh, there's a group in this nearby area or that nearby area, but not one in Salford. Mm. I wish there were, would be one. And three ladies sat on the front row about 12 years ago, said, well, we'll set one up. <laughs> and that is now one of the, the support groups in Salford that mm. Anthony's just mentioned. So <laughs> yes. if there isn't a local resource, then perhaps challenging your patients to think about, you know, whether it's something they could provide or support can be... Um, a good step. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the lady who, who runs one of the fibromyalgia support groups in Salford, she actually is part of a um, show we put together a few years ago called Pain the Brain, a Little Bit of Magic. And she's the star of the show, yeah. really. And she's been traveling around the Northwest with us with that. So it can, can lead to all sorts of positive things. Yeah, well, that yeah. sounds very interesting. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> so this was a show we got some funding from Wellcome Trust a few years ago. And it's a collaboration between my research group and uh, a theatre group called Naive Theatre. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a, a narrative show and it uses storytelling, music, magic, quite a lot of noise, quite a lot of different props <laughs> to sort of tell the story of chronic pain and some of the recent discoveries and some of the potential new smart neurotherapies that we're developing. Um, so the idea is it gives understanding and optimism about their condition and some reason to have a little bit of hope about the future as well and a bit of fun uh, we 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 had amazing feedback from patients it was quite humbling really and some patients you know, even said they felt the show had changed their lives uh, which yeah. was was very very humbling yeah. uh, we're not quite sure what made it work let's see any trouble yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And the, so the target audience is for probably people suffering the yes the it was really everyone uh people suffering patients their relatives uh healthcare professionals students medical students nursing students anyone who has an interest really <laughs> uh, yeah I, i'm not sure we can move on from support groups until we talk about online support groups oh, yeah. Uh, you probably, you know, it's probably relevant in all diagnoses, but particularly, I think in fibromyalgia, there, there are some fantastic online groups and it could be people join the the Salford one or the Manchester one and then there's potential to do things face to face as well or there, there's national groups. But with, with fibromyalgia, because there aren't fantastic options for treatment out there, there's a lot of people offering um, alternative options, some of which are less evidence-based and maybe less successful than they might be so we do get quite often people will come in with something they found online look i found this they're selling it for x amount of pounds for x amount of supply what do you think yep. and the response is usually well if it if it works and it was found to be effective we'd be offering you this on the nhs so i think support groups can be very positive but sometimes online forums can be a place where people can um rather prey on the 
yeah. unfortunate. And I, I think uh, we try and keep our fibromyalgia patients to kind of recognised websites to get their information, which I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a very important point to make, yeah. really. Um, I was just thinking in terms of um, the drug therapies when we were talking about that. You'd mentioned about pregabalin and gabapentin. I think I see a lot of letters coming back suggesting um, amitriptyline as an option to start. Would that be something that you'd recommend before the gabapentin line or are they both just about as efficacious as each other? Yeah, well, the only good evidence in terms of antidepressants is around duloxetine. Okay. And trials haven't been done on every antidepressant. So it may well be that all antidepressants have some benefit. We don't really know. Amitriptyline is a relatively non-selective antidepressant that has quite useful sedative actions. I use amitriptyline mainly really where there's a particular problem with with sleep which is disabling yeah um so i generally only use just small doses of amitriptyline and i'm talking you know 10 to 30 milligrams yeah uh which is a very very low dose i mean it probably doesn't have much effect on mood yeah but can be beneficial for sleep the only problem is once you start giving tablets for sleep, you definitely don't want that to lead on to, you know, taking benzodiazepines yeah. for, for sleep and, and moving into that territory. And obviously there are concerns with amitriptyline around, you know, people with um, arrhythmias and so forth. So needs to be some sort of caution there. But it can be a uh, useful adjunct for me as a non-medical prescriber i guess i'm even more cautious with medications more we'll go for the non-pharmacological options first off but with the amitriptyline for the past couple of years with most of the patients i recommend it to i put it hand in hand with getting them to do some monitoring of their sleep so usually with their mobile phone but if they come with some kind of wearable tech i'd like ask them to do a couple of weeks of monitoring their current sleep patterns so deep sleep versus light sleep, mm-hmm. duration of sleep, um, how many times they're woken overnight. And that's useful data to look at anyway. But if they do that for a couple of weeks without the amitriptyline and then they start the amitriptyline, not only do they have their own recall of their sleep quality, which is research suggests isn't always perfect what we recall of what happened overnight, you've also got the phone or the wearable tech giving you some data and showing hopefully an improvement in deep sleep percentage on the medication in which case it's the right thing to do carry on with it yep but if it shows zero change then perhaps that isn't a tablet that's going to do what it might do for yeah. them yeah. um i should say anecdotally about one in 10 people come back to clinic and say this phone did nothing for me it thought i was asleep and i was wide awake um and you know and they don't like having that level of data but i'd normally argue well even if it says you've got eight hours and you had an hour we can see if that eight hour becomes 10 hour you know on yeah, it's basically, either the pharmacological yeah. or non-pharmacological treatment for that and i think probably the the way of measuring that and our smartphones are getting smarter mm. year on year so i think we probably will have better ways of analyzing people's sleep uh, to get more feedback on what treatments are or aren't working for that yeah it's a good use of uh, smartphone tech actually i've not used it for that <laughs> mm. kind of moving forward then so which sorts of people with chronic widespread pain should we be referring to secondary care then which sorts of people do you want to be seeing Well, I think potentially most of these patients could be managed in primary care. Mm -hmm. 
I think where there's a, a real doubt about the diagnosis or uncertainty about the diagnosis or a worry about whether there's something else going on that the GP feels is outside their field of competency. And I think if that uncertainty is in the patient as well, even if the GP is convinced yeah. but the patient isn't on the same page, then that yeah. referral can be useful. Yep. Yeah. So I think that we're talking about the more complex patients and I suppose there, there is a sort of unfair disparity really between primary and secondary care in that you guys do not have very much time to see your patients and yeah. we probably have a little bit more time. So I suspect that's probably a, a slight driver <laughs> in yeah. that uh, it's just very hard to make the time, appropriate time to, to see these patients. But I think it's it's the primarily really the complexity and probably the severity okay. or lack of access to appropriate therapies. Yes. So if our local service doesn't do the CBT or yes, the physio don't happy, exactly. things like that. Yes. Okay. Um, and if we've got somebody who we've tried um, that in the community, we've tried physio, we've tried CBT, is there anything different that you would offer in secondary care? Well, I'd say the first thing that we have we're very lucky and having a professor of neurorheumatology in the team is, is is key is we do have research trials ongoing where we can offer alternate or novel treatments non-pharmacological treatments mm. so that can be useful the other thing is we need to just dig into why those previous treatment fa failed you know physio never worked for me okay I look on the computer well actually you only went once and it looks like you know you then didn't go to future appointments so we need to dig into and that's not necessarily the patient's fault. It could be that things haven't been sold to them correctly. So there's no reason they shouldn't go back round the wheel into the recommended treatments. Yes, I'm, I think just the, these patients are difficult to manage. So we have to kind of share that probably. And the reality is people respond differently to different people and uh, respond differently to the advice that they might give. I think from our point of view, as Will says, the main advantage is that um, we've got quite a lot of trials going on of a sort of new approach mm -hmm. to uh, therapy, which is our smart neurotherapies platform. I mean, this is all still very much work in progress, but the, the eventual fantasy is that patients will have a, a gizmo on their smartphone, mm -hmm. so an app. Uh, that would allow them to tap in their symptoms, the drugs they're taking, how they're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. And then they'll have um, the option of being able to record their brainwaves on their smartphone. So they'll have a, a kind of smart um, EEG cap that they plonk on their head, which will not uh, require any messing around with EEG jelly and this kind of stuff. Then there'll be two, two kind of approaches one which is what we call alpha entrainment so this is all based on some studies we did showing that if you actually entrain the brain to express more alpha waves mm -hmm. it has a, a, a pain-killing effect so you get an analgesic effect this was shown with experimental pain and we're now doing trials to um, see if we can show similar benefits with chronic pain Mm -hmm. So this is really just the very beginning of a platform that will 
help you to train your brain in different ways. So obviously we're focusing on alpha at the moment because we think that's the most promising brain waves, but um, there's evidence that other types of brain waves might be interesting too. Yeah. And also other diseases. There's a whole um, load of other brain-based problems that, you know, maybe this could be applied to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you asked about anything different offered in secondary care. Oh, and yeah. certainly for us in Salford, it is in secondary care, but it doesn't need to be, which is the patient education programme. Um, so it's between an hour and an hour and a half. Uh, myself and the occupational therapist talk about the condition and we talk about management strategies. But actually the volume of scale works well with that because we'll have 20 or 25 people in the room and consistently, when we ask them, you know, what was the best part, they'll all say the best part was when you opened it to the floor and said, describe the symptoms of fibromyalgia. So we normally give about 15 minutes for people in the room to say, actually, I always get this or I always get that. And having the ability to run a program with those many people in the room means they can fire off each other. Yeah. And they do find that really, really useful. And that could be secondary care, but it could equally happen in a primary care based pain clinic or kind of even if you think about group consultations as a big thing in yeah. general practice at the moment using other patients to either normalize the symptoms or to kind of give support for self-treatment yeah. can be really uh, useful in terms of just the with the sulfur access can gps refer directly to the education program or does it have to come through the secondary care route uh, they can refer directly to the education program and i've, I've been around the different boroughs of greater manchester trying to sell it so it runs in other areas and it's a bit patchy for that reason we'll take anybody into the educational group if they're prepared to travel good to know and it works for us because actually the more people in the room like i say the more feedback they get from each other and that can be really useful yeah occasionally patients mention cannabis-based products so cbd-based products how do you kind of tackle this issue at the moment i think it's it's quite a difficult time right now for that and um, there really isn't very much evidence that cbd works and that's what's available generally for fibromyalgia there isn't really very clear evidence for cannabinoids in general working well for chronic pain there are quite a lot of small studies that are quite encouraging mm -hmm. the problem is cannabinoid pharmacology is really complex but we're just at a point where the right substantial well-designed trials have just not really quite been done yet there are some smaller trials which as i say are encouraging but there's not enough to allow one to say yeah everyone should be taking this and certainly not enough to say people should be shelling out a lot of money to pay for it on their own account i perhaps make a general point about alternative therapies that I think it's problematic in a way because most trials are against placebo. Mm -hmm. Placebo is a really powerful mechanism for suppressing pain. Yeah. <laughs> and it probably acts in not dissimilar ways to cognitive therapy. Seems to be working through the front of the brain to modify how other bits of the pain matrix are working. Mm -hmm. So in my view, if you're getting a consistent placebo effect, you're doing pretty well. You're <laughs> lucky. So I think it's not really a matter of whether it's been shown 
to be better than placebo or not. It's a matter of what the cost is, either in terms of side effects or money. So if something's really cheap and really safe and it's no better than placebo, I think that's probably fine. Uh, And you can apply that to quite a lot of things. The problem comes if there's potential harms and and serious uh, cost. So I, I wouldn't look down my nose at people who try things that we regard as placebos because if that works for them they're self-managing their pain in a relatively harmless way Mm -hmm. true point yeah Um, and in terms of the illness um, you touched a little bit on it earlier about very few people um being cured of it but what kind of is the natural history what would we be expecting for most patients i think probably we're all trained to tell the patient look your pain's never going to fully go away and that's a really difficult thing to hear and it's quite difficult for us to say it because we want to tell them good news but i tend to say look it will always be there to a degree we expect and for most people but if your pain's currently eight out of ten we'd want to get it to a two out of ten Or even your pain might still be moderate, but you can do the things you want to do. And what I care about is you doing what you want to do rather than necessarily what your pain is. So we can actually get your life back, get you doing those things despite the pain, rather than desperately chasing a solution to solve all of the pain and then get your life back. It's life back first and then think about how pain settles with that. That's useful. Yes, I'd, I'd go along with that. I mean, I, I have a, literally a handful of patients who have completely got rid of their fibromyalgia symptoms, but they are what I would call these sort of super patients. They completely got the explanation as soon as they came. They totally invested in the CBT and exercise, and that's become almost a kind of religious practice for them and they have managed to uh, become pain-free but this is a handful of patients in 25 years (laughs) so unfortunately very rarely does go away but absolutely aim for quality of life and I think that the level of the pain is is obviously really important for patients but the presence of pain is also in a way part of their identity. So some patients find it difficult to relinquish that bit of their identity because it's it's very important part of their personality, you know. And so um, I think focusing on the quality of life is, is, is really, really important and not getting too obsessed with whether the, the pain is one level less than it was yeah. before. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's some nice research in a different rheumatology diagnosis where they look at somebody who's lived with pain for a long time. And this is a friend of mine who did interviews and qualitative research with these patients as they reached their 60s and 70s. And suddenly they found all their peers were having pain because it's yes. normal. You know, we all, and probably as we age, we're more prone to it. And actually the the feedback was these 60, 70-year-olds who'd lived with pain for 30, 40 years were happier than those who'd developed the pain later on in life. So actually living with pain is problematic, but it's something an awful lot of us will do, whether at a younger age or an older Mm -hmm. age. 
and perhaps a, a longer lifetime lived with pain makes you better at dealing and coping with it and you'll actually be a happier octogenarian when you get to that because you've you've dealt with it you're, you're learning ways to it, not ignore it but live despite it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very yeah. interesting research um are there any associated conditions that can occur alongside fibromyalgia well we've talked about all the different symptoms mm. that are associated with it including psychological distress such as anxiety and depression There is also an association with more severe types of psychological distress, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. So those are important. There is also an association with polycystic ovaries, which is uh, quite interesting and does kind of feed into the ideas of the neuroendocrine system being Mm. under stress in these patients yeah and then there are the sort of epidemiological associations so there is an increase uh instance as i mentioned previously of cancer and cardiovascular disease so i think that's just an awareness thing i wouldn't suggest everyone should be told about that but i think physicians and healthcare professionals should be aware of that and be particularly vigilant about at least trying to you know prevent those things so it all feeds into the general advice of keeping active keeping your weight down yeah mm-hmm. monitoring your cardiovascular health brilliant and i think earlier you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome and chronic fatigue yes. syndrome and these other pain prevalent conditions that just because of the way we divide medicine, sit in other specialities. And uh, we're, we're quite fortunate here, and Anthony, I don't think will mind me saying this, that he's looked at having a pain group across the trust. So when we have a patient with IBS, you'll give me a name of the person in gastro who is the best person to talk to about it, or the person in neuro who's the best person. And just having that think about these pain conditions that are probably the, the same kind of issue but they because of the way we divide it they go to different specialisms in the hospital yeah yeah because we were talking about that it feels like there is an umbrella of conditions that we don't quite yet know what they are but they're all very similar and the patient groups overlap quite a lot Mm. absolutely yeah Yeah. Uh, the other one to mention is probably hypermobility or ehlers danlos and we do see quite a lot of overlap between ehlers danlos eds hypermobility and fibromyalgia Mm. and it's perhaps living with the hypermobile joints or the other symptoms of uh, the other types of eds that then leave you more prone to the fibromyalgia but we do see quite a few of those coming into our pain clinics Mm. Um, and in terms of we've talked about kind of support groups and being careful with online um, things are there any good resources that you think that we should be recommending to patients that they can be using so I've gone away and written a list ahead yeah, of this. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> we love a list. I, I think probably what we would do in clinic, the first thing is the A5 booklet that versus arthritis produce. And that's the thing we tend to give out. Uh, that's actually regularly updated. It's available online and it's peer reviewed and it's very, very good. And it says a lot of the things we've already said this afternoon, I suspect. Brilliant. Um, if you want to be diagnosis specific, I've mentioned fibromyalgia, the Fibromyalgia Association UK mm. uh, that have a, a really nice website and a nice online presence with that. And then the other things we will mention is Pain Toolkit, which is a really good um, national 
international resource, I guess it is now that mm. Pete Moore runs, who's an expert patient um, as much as anything else. So that's very patient focused, but he also does collision education stuff. Oh, brilliant. Okay. As well. And live well with pain is probably more clinician than patient based. Yes, but GP based. That that was set up by a GP called Francis Cole, who's very interested in trying to get the positive messages out to primary care. Yeah, I've come across it ourselves. Yeah, no, I think it's a very nice resource, both for GPs, but also for patients as well. Mm. Um, to kind of just show them that there are positive messages about pain and things. It is quite a nice website. I should mention Moving Medicine as well, which is a nice online resource. And Moving Medicine in different areas of musculoskeletal has a little script for either if you've got five minutes or two minutes or when they launched what was called the zero minute consultation. I think they've called it less than one minute now, but kind of the way the things you'd ask, the things you'd mention for the chronic pain musculoskeletal diagnosis for those patients. And that's quite a good resource for clinicians who are time strapped, which yes. is yep. probably all of us, but maybe more so in general practice yep. um, to think about ways to phrase things and the things to ask. Great. And um, we'll link to all of those um, in the description. Yeah, they're really helpful. Do you think there's anything that we could be doing better in primary care? Well, I think a lot of good things go on in primary care as far as I can gather. And actually, we, of course, don't see most of the good things mm, yeah. that go on. I think what I get from talking to patient support groups is that the most common thing I think that doesn't go well is um, being believed. Mm -hmm. And I think that is unfortunate when it occurs because in a way these 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 patients, they've been very unfortunate in lots of ways they've, they've been badly treated often when they were children or adolescents and then they've developed these nasty symptoms and then to be disbelieved by a healthcare professional <laughs> on yeah. top is is sort of adding insult to injury so i don't think that happens very often but when it does happen it has a really uh, negative uh, effect so I think when it occurs, it's probably, it's a result of overthinking. It's a result of somebody thinking, well, I don't really believe in fibromyalgia and thinking that's a sufficient thing to say. Well, uh, fibromyalgia exists, widespread pain exists. No one can mm. not believe in that. You might not believe in the explanations for that yeah. but it's kind of nonsensical to say I don't believe in widespread pain it's like saying I don't believe in depression or anxiety mm -hmm. these are the symptoms that patients are coming along with yeah. and it's up to us to provide a good explanation yeah. so I think I'd like to see that more or less disappearing and I think perhaps one thing that could occur is that primary care communities and secondary care communities come together more to design the ideal way of managing these patients who are very demanding and complex. Yeah. And what I would like to see is more or less parallel resources in primary and secondary care. Mm, that would be lovely. And people in different departments such as neurology where the migraine patients may be seen gastroenterology where 
the irritable bowel patients may be seen, rheumatology, having the appropriate resources to refer patients for common CBT program uh, and everyone sharing that because these are the same patients. And uh, I think what goes on at the moment is there's a lot of compartmentalization of resources. I think those resources should be pooled across primary and secondary care. Mm, yeah. Good. Um, what about you, Will? Do you have any thoughts on what we could be doing better in primary um, care? Yeah, and I think as Anthony says, there's probably fantastic examples and we're somewhat biased in maybe we see the examples that aren't so good and that's why we get involved. That's why we're asked to be involved. Yeah. I think there's a few issues I've had with primary care where you know, referring into physio, they'll say, oh, we don't do fibromyalgia, that's just done at the hospital. And you have to think about that and think, well, you know, if it's one in 10 of the population have chronic pain, actually you are seeing patients who would be diagnosed with this. It's, it's managing a pain diagnosis and working on activity levels around that. That's your bread and butter. You're doing that all the time. It's just that you don't call it fibromyalgia necessarily. So I think making sure that patients don't get disadvantaged by having a diagnostic term that's perhaps less familiar mm -hmm. and they're treated for what their problems are because I think it should be seen um, in primary care and should be treated in primary care successfully. Yeah. What are the kind of takeaway points that you'd like people listening to keep with them? Well, I, for me, I think it's listen to the patient, listen to the patient. Mm -hmm. Make sure you examine the patient properly. Then make a clear diagnosis and ensure that that patient gets a good explanation, which should be positive, featuring the fact that a lot of the things that are going wrong in their brain are potentially reversible. Mm -hmm. They can take more control, they can self-manage in a more effective way, and making sure they get access to at least exercise and CBT in a timely fashion. Okay. Great. Yeah, similar, I suppose. I, I really like the um, the ACR questionnaires that we use, and I think that's should be it's been designed for primary care. So I'd be delighted to see more people, if they need us, referring in saying, you know, eighteen out of nineteen widespread pain or ten out of twelve symptoms of everity, and thinking about that as a way to uh, reinforce the ability to diagnose in primary care. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and then I suppose it's the ability to stick to those kind of three or four areas of treatment so we know that graded exercise at the right level and talking therapies can be helpful and, and perhaps some medication to allow that if we have to, but just consistent messages. So whoever they see in general practice will say, okay, well, you had the diagnosis, these were the plans that were offered to you, how are you getting on with them? You know, and, and just allowing patients, if it takes three or four visits for the penny to drop and to kind of make those changes that will help, mm. then that's worth um, investing in. Brilliant. I'd, I'd say, I mean, I think there's wonderful things going on in primary care, and I know a lot of these patients get really well looked after. But I would just say find ways of trying to allocate a bit more time for these patients, probably, because I think it's you do need time. I, I would find it very stressful yeah. <laughs> trying to see these patients in 10 minutes i think it's almost impossible so i think finding an imaginative way of doing that would be good and i think probably a network of support as well so you mentioned a whatsapp group that you're on but if there was a whatsapp group of gps interested in pain you can just have that ability to discuss cases mm. either you know formally or lightheartedly but just to try and 
realize that you're not doing it alone which it can feel like with some of these niche areas dealing with Mm -hmm. these pain patients you've got the passion for it everyone else in the general practice just sends them to you and you're the one who's you know holding the light for these patients but perhaps it could be shared and you know an ability to share that even across different practices and seeing what other people are doing with the group of patients it's an exciting area with kind of new research and there's always something new on the horizon despite Mm. there not being a cure there's always something to think about how we can improve things for this group of patients yeah well brilliant thanks so much literally for taking the time out to speak to us today it's been fascinating well thanks for inviting us to contribute really enjoyed it all right Yeah, so now that we've heard both parts of the fibromyalgia talk with Anthony Jones and William Gregory, what do you reckon your learning points from this one are, Sarah? Um, The management of fibromyalgia is much clearer. Just that whole concept of CBT and physio all the way. Definitely. Um, Yeah, and that it's graded exercises, not to overdo it as well. Yeah, definitely. And also I thought it was really interesting about thinking laterally in these patients, finding out what they used to enjoy, doing things like choirs, art classes and things like that and how that can have really great outcomes. Yeah, the positive message again. Yeah. I really liked the loads of resources that we got from that episode for patients and for um, practitioners. Mm -hmm. Um, Learning about the support groups and where they fit in, but also being careful with some online groups yeah as with everything really yeah I really liked the discussion about research it was really interesting Mm. to think of new things or new approaches I liked considering alpha waves definitely Um, and then also touching on the medications was useful Um, the fact that um, we should be really having an open discussion with patients before giving the medications and talking about side effects and how long they should be on it and and just making sure that they're clear what they're getting into really and also the use of amitriptyline and the the thoughts around monitoring sleep when you use it yeah to actually monitor it yeah yeah Yeah. um so i might use that myself so um we'd be really grateful if anyone could spend the time just one or two minutes to fill out our survey if you can that's the best way of giving us any feedback and suggestions for future episodes Mm -hmm. or what we could be doing better or you could email us on primary care podcasts at gmail.com yeah and we're also on twitter and our handle is at pckb podcast and on there we um, we tweet about our new episodes um we have chats with people who want to give us some feedback and we might uh, post some interesting research that's come up um in the course of recording the episodes and also if you like us tell a friend um it's the best way of um, getting the news of the podcast out so share with people on social media or tell people and we'd be really grateful till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.